Michael Samet, you're a Jesuit. You are the regional director of JRS in the Middle East. Come back from Aleppo. What is the situation there and in Syria in general? Uh, about four weeks ago, we saw the the bombings in in Aleppo. The media presented the situation as being a very bad situation, and I did have the impression going there that I would find a city in ruins. That isn't quite the case. Um, people have suffered. There have been a lot of heavy bombings, but people are also used to bombings. So what they do is, when there are bombings, people go into shelter and they remain in the shelter. Then when the bombings stop, uh, they go out again and life continues more or less as normal. So, um, yes, I did go in. I did see um, buildings that have been hit. I have seen five-story buildings of which only two stories are left. But I did also see a city that was full of people, people in the streets, people out walking, and people who are taking care of themselves. People are well-dressed, they wash, they, um, they take care of their looks. It is really astounding to see, to see the resilience that people have built up in very, very difficult conditions. And the conditions are very difficult. Yeah, because, I mean, we did hear recently there were appeals in certain parts of Syria for food because the, the cities were blockaded and they couldn't get supplies. That isn't the case then in Aleppo. Uh, Aleppo is not blockaded. Um, in the government-controlled part of the city, which might contain 1.5 million people, there is only one road in and one road out, and everything has to go through that road. Now, sometimes the control of the road changes hands, so um, supplies cannot get in. That is when the situation becomes very difficult. When that happens, usually um, uh, one side gets back the road in about five or six days, so it only remains closed for six days. But when it's closed for a month, then things become difficult. And what about the hospital? We heard there were two strikes on hospitals there. Yes, hospitals are a a target, and that is a pity. Are Uh, they deliberately targeted, do you think? I think so. Um, uh, uh, hospitals um, encourage people the lack of hospitals will encourage people to leave uh, people stay in Aleppo mainly because they don't really have anywhere to go the richer people have already left the people who can get work and housing elsewhere have left Aleppo used to be a city of 5 million people now I doubt if it, there are 2 million people left it was the um, economic heartland of Syria all these places have been destroyed People are without work. Um, even if you do have a job, which is difficult, your salary won't get you more than uh, through a week's expenses, living expenses. So I would say in Aleppo, um, everybody needs help. And um, the, the Red Cross, Red Crescent, does give out a lot of food, and that's a very good thing. What can JRS do there, and what are you doing there? We are in emergency relief services, which isn't quite the um, our niche as JRS. JRS usually works in education and in psychosocial accompaniment. In Aleppo, um, we first of all have a kitchen in which uh, we prepare hot food for some 8,000 people every day. We do the cooking, then we give the food to associations we are in, in linked with who then uh, distribute the food themselves. That is one important um, thing we're doing. Secondly, we're one of the agencies that give out, distribute uh, food, uh, food baskets that are uh, given out by the World Food Programme through the Red Cross Red Crescent. We're responsible for a sector of the city. 
And we're one of only two Christian organizations doing that work. There are some 35 in all. So it's very, very important for the church to have a presence in this in this distribution. We have a clinic for uh, we receive some 2,000, 2,500 people every month. And we see mainly people who have chronic disease. Um, in emergency situations, people with chronic disease are those who are left aside. Nobody takes care of them. And it's very, very stupid nowadays to die because of untreated high blood pressure or untreated diabetes. Because you forget that while they're suffering from the horror of a dreadful war, I mean, you describe people going into a shelter while they're being bombed and then coming back out to live their normal life. This must take a terrible toll on them just on their ordinary everyday living. Everything becomes difficult. It, it, it's, it, it's strange. The, the simplest things take on a whole, a whole huge other dimension. But life does continue. For example, one of the activities the Jesuits have in Aleppo is to have a small place where students come to study. We call it study zone. You have a lot of university students in, in Aleppo. They come, they spend the day, they study, they share, they, they have coffee. Um, you'd imagine nothing is going on. So this is, this is the, the sort of contradiction which is extraordinarily striking. You have this difficult situation and you have people trying to live as normally as they can. And is this the case throughout the rest of Syria? Because I do remember talking to a Jesuit bishop from Syria and uh, maybe two years ago, and he said that there were parts of Syria where it was like a holiday resort and things were fine. Now, I do think things may have changed since then, have they? Uh, on the coast, yeah. the situation is much, much calmer. There is, there is one city, that's Tartus. The whole department doesn't have any frontier with, with a conflict zone. So over there, the only thing that, that is different that you see is the uh, number of checkpoints you have to enter the city. Otherwise, life is completely normal. In Latakie, uh, you did have recently a car bomb that, uh, that went off. But otherwise, there as well, life is more or less as normal. So you do have certain parts of Syria in which you do not really have the, the feeling that there is a war going on. And why don't the people from Aleppo go to that city? They're not allowed to anymore. You, um, you have, especially on the coastal areas, uh, you have the refusal of more uh, displaced people coming into those regions. They're already full up. They don't want them. I know a, an old woman with, uh, well, a reasonably old woman, with two, two nieces last year who left Aleppo, who tried to enter Tartus. She was refused. She tried to enter um, Latia. She was refused. And finally, she was allowed into Banyas, another smaller uh, area on the coast, after having paid uh, roughly a month's salary. So too many people, they don't want them. They're sent out into the villages. But in the, in the villages, you won't find work. You won't find anything to do. And so begins a long refugee trek out of Syria, that dangerous, dangerous trek for so many people. What are the GRS doing for those people who have to leave? So we are present in, 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 in Lebanon, and you have over a million uh, refugees in Lebanon. I think officially they're, 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 they are 1.2 million, but um, statistics give the number at 1.5 million. Um, the refugee question in Lebanon is enormous. One in four in Lebanon is a Syrian refugee. Um, over there, we, we, we have our usual core activities, so we're in education and psychosocial accompaniment. We reach out to some 2,500 children and, and their families. That's a high statistic 
in Lebanon, the people who are there, are they accepted and looked after well or is there any tension? Oh, there's, there definitely is a tension. Uh, first of all, uh, Lebanon is divided um, in its approach to, to the Syrian question. Um, the fundamentalist, fundamental Sunnites would be uh, with the people fighting against the Assad government. The Shiite community would be much more favorable uh, to the Assad government and fighting to defend the Assad government. And you have these two components present in Syria fighting against each other. Um, so there are already very, very high tensions inside Lebanon because of this conflict. Uh, high tensions as well because of the amount of people that have come in. Uh, there has always been a very large Syrian workforce in, in Lebanon. They'd be working in the, um, in the building industry and in agriculture. So you'd have several hundred thousands. But now they're there with their families, with their children, putting strain on, on schooling. The Lebanese government has done a lot of effort to, to get people into schools, but it cannot cope with, uh, with that number. Uh, also, uh, for the first time, you have Syrians competing with, Leban with Lebanese for, for jobs and for the same work. Um, no problem for the con construction industry and for agricultural labor, but you have Syrians opening up small shops. And that would be in direct competition with Lebanese, so that would be a major problem. Uh, I think they're driving wages down, not the official wages, but the illegal, illegal wages. Um, you also have, um, have tents and small camps going up, especially in the Beka Valley. Lebanon has refused to have large refugee camps, and that is because of the bad ex negative experience we have had with the Palestinian refugee crisis. Uh, we do not want um, official tents, we do not want the people to stay. But um, where will they go? And can they go back? Most people would want to go back. But to go back, you need to have, first of all, cessation of hostilities, then you need peace, then you need to rebuild the infrastructure, you need to provide jobs, provide schools, and then you can go back. And I think most people would say, well, bring it on to have to do all that if they could only get peace. It seems so elusive. It seems so intractable. Have you any hope that there is any solution in sight for this war in Syria? Well, already I think the ceasefire that has been in place is already a, a good step forward. Uh, in Damascus, I was there recently. Um, the last two times I've been in Damascus, I haven't heard... Uh, the artillery shells either leaving or arriving. That's a good thing. That doesn't mean that there aren't um, fighting in some areas of the city, but the general um, ambiance is, is calm. People are out, people can go out on the street. So that's a first step forward. And I think when people realize that, that you can have peace, I think there will be more efforts to keep on that peace. It's easier for um, the cannons not to start firing when they've stopped than for them to, to stop once they are firing. So that's a very good, uh, a very good step forward. In the Near East, we're very, very naive in our way of looking at things. Uh, we believe that um, America and Russia can get together and decide uh, for the war to stop and everything to stop and things to start again. We're naive. Uh, will that happen? I have no idea. Do we hope it happens? Yes, we do. Definitely. Um, the war is going on um, and is being funded by uh, states and private individuals 
who are close to these major powers. And we believe that if there is a political decision, very, very clear, these powers can influence these other regional regional powers to stop their, 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 their influence. If you cut off the money and if you cut off the arms, uh, then I think the, the, the fighting will stop. You spoke about the tension between Muslim, Sunni and Shiite. What about the Christian-Muslim relationship in camps? Are they together, refugees, or and how is that working out? Right. Um, in Lebanon, we don't have camps as such. We have groups of, of tents. Uh, the groupings will be maybe of 50, 60 tents, maybe going up to 100. And they will be mainly people from um, uh, uh, from the same village or from the same quarter or from the same families. Uh, very often Christians will find other ways to live. Christians will be much more uh, in the urban parts. They'll be much more living in, in housing. They'll be much more living in unfinished housing, not so much in the camps themselves. The JRS is also involved in Kurdistan. Tell us about the situation there. Right. Uh, in Kurdistan, we were not speaking about Syrian refugees. It wouldn't be um, uh, Syrian refugees, though there are some Syrian refugees. But the major problem in Kurdistan would be the Iraqi displaced people. About two years ago, IS took over, Islamic State took over a very, last, a very large region in the Nineveh Plains and in Mosul. And that, and that brought about a huge exodus of people. Uh, people being... Um, Sunnite Muslims, yes, but especially the Christians and even more the Yazidis. Um, many of them are in Erbil and around Erbil. And I think the Christian, the, the Catholic Church has done a lot to receive and to organize the, um, the coming of the Christians. Um, in our part of the world, um, Christians would tend to take care, above all, of other Christians and Muslims would tend to take care of Muslims. We in GRS, we, um, we're slightly not very well regarded because we believe that as Christians, we should reach out to everybody. And we are working with Muslims and with Christians. As the Pope has clearly signalled, it's his intention that that's what he thinks should be done. Oh, definitely. And I think that is what Christ wants. Of Matthew 25, I don't think it makes a difference between uh, whether your skin is white or whether it's dark, whether you're, you're Christian or you're not Christian. That is, I think, the essential part of an essential part of our of our faith. Coming back to what is the the, the, the Christian response in, in Erbil is to take first of all care of of the Christians, and then if there is possibility, then you take care of the of the people of the other religions. What is for me as an outsider slightly shocking is that um, for Iraqis, when you are in Kurdistan, it's the same country, but it is not the same country. Um, for example, if you are a second-year student in Mosul, university student in Mosul, you're now in, 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 in Erbil, you cannot continue your university studies. Uh, university is in a different language. It isn't in Arabic, it's in Kurdish. Uh, the schools aren't, aren't in Arabic. Um, it's a uh, Kurdistan is an autonomous region, and um, very, very clearly, um, uh, it's not the same thing for a person from Mosul to move into Erbil as it would be for him to move into Baghdad. But of course, Baghdad remains a very dangerous place. So, JRS are involved in um, working in camps there, are there small tented places and Tell me what else you're doing in Kurdistan. 
So uh, at the moment we're just in Erbil. Our projects are to move north into the Duhok province, where, where there are much greater needs and where you have a lot of uh, Yazidis who are much less organized than the Christians are. Um, in Erbil, yes, you do have camps. Uh, in most of the camps, people will be living not in tents, but they'll be living in, in prefabricated uh, small small shelters. Uh, in some, the living conditions are frankly very, very bad, uh, with um, communal showers and toilets that uh, leave a lot of to desire. And in one place, the whole um, uh, aeration of the of the camp leaves a lot to desire because they're in a huge warehouse. On the other hand, you've got more recent camps, larger. You've got much bigger uh, prefabs. You've got prefabs with two rooms, with internal toilets and showers, and, and, that, and that's good. With the ever-present threat of IS as well, because, I mean, they're still there and they're not so far away, wouldn't that be right? Yes, but I don't think, I don't think IS would be able to get into, into Erbil. Erbil is the capital of the Kurdistan. It's well defended by the Peshmergas. And um, uh, there's a huge airport in Erbil, which I think is also used by, um, by the major powers for their bombing against IS. So I think Erbil uh, will not fall. So the people are not living under fear of no. death or attack, at not least in, in those places. What about the situation then in the rest of the country? Is it's fallen off the radar? Is it still massively unstable? Definitely. You, you regularly have... Um, uh, uh, car bombs and other explosives in, in Baghdad. So Baghdad isn't, isn't safe. Uh, you have the question always coming back of the possibility of uh, the Iraqi army trying to retake parts of, um, uh, parts of Iraq which are under IS uh, command. And um, in, the, in the parts of, uh, of uh, Iraq that are under IS command, uh, life is, is very difficult, especially if you are not a Sunni Muslim. Uh, Christians are considered to be people of the book. So in a certain way, they have some protection. Uh, you'd have to probably wear um, special clothing. You wouldn't have access to certain jobs. You have to pay a tax. But if you're a Shiite Muslim or if you're a, you're a Yazidi, you aren't a person of the book. You aren't protected. There is absolutely no problem to sell you into slavery or to kill you. It can seem a problem of such huge proportions at every level when we look at it. Um, you're a Christian, you're a Jesuit. Are you a person of hope at this stage? It's interesting you ask that question. Um, two months ago I visited Chad and I went to the east of the country where JRS is educating uh, 35,000 people in the camps. I felt that there is no hope over there. And I do feel that there is hope in our part of the world. So yes, I think we can get somewhere and I think there will be an end to this madness. But over there in Chad, no. Why not? 35,000 children in, in, in classrooms, sitting down on the floor, uh, don't have benches, don't have, um, uh, uh, don't have real schooling equipment, the UN is cutting their budgets every year and making it more and more difficult to educate them. Uh, the, the war in Darfur, they're there without being there. They can't really do much in Chad. And they've been there for such a long time already. Well, meantime, your work goes on. And 
one thing strikes me is that it must cost an awful lot of money. How is JRS Europe being funded? Um, right, the the Caritas Network is a is a very good friend of ours. So so they fund quite a lot of our projects. Caritas, the Catholic Church's agency for a, an aid agency, effectively. Yes. So so they would they would be a very they would be very helpful and um, regular partners. The Irish Caritas Trocra is, is one of our of our funders and faithful partners. That's Trocra here in Ireland, which people would often give to, and they yes. would be familiar with the gift in their boxes that are in their homes every Lent. So so some of that money is going to help the work. It does. Th- that goes to Trocra is going to have the work you've spoken about today. Yeah. It does, it does. Then we also have access to uh, the Caritas Network outside of Europe. So the Caritas Canada is, is a very, very good help as well. The Jesuit Mission Network with the mission procurers of Nuremberg, Germany, um, Austria and, and Switzerland. They're, they're very good fundraisers as well. And Irish Jesuit Missions? Yes, as well. Yes, of course, Irish Jesuit missions as well. Not so much as the Germans, but still helpful. You're a small country. You're a small country. And some of these friends of ours do also have access to government funds. And when you're in emergency relief, uh, you do need huge amounts of money. And there uh, you do have government funding, which is necessary. So if people are listening to this, if they do want to help the really important work that you are doing, that work that doesn't take account of whether you're a Christian, a Muslim, agnostic or an atheist. Are you a human being who needs the care and love that these people need for their basic human dignity and in the hope toward peace in Ireland, supporting Trocra or the Irish missions, the money will, the money will go, go to will, you. will go to us and uh, a very, very high percentage of money that comes to us actually goes to the people. Yeah, I'd say that's another advantage. Of very, the administration costs will be very little. I mean, you're a Jesuit. This is your work. That's what you're doing. And that's funded also, I presume, by your Jesuit community. It is. But I, I'd also say there's another, another thing which, should come, which comes into consideration is that we employ a lot of people. In Syria, in Syria, we have over 320 people who are working for us. That's 320 families that are having income to be able to live and to be able to work. So, yes, we need to get goods into the country, need to help people in the country. But we also um, need to be able to provide jobs and livelihoods. And our projects do that. Our personnel is 100% Syrian. They're from the local community. They're uh, many of them IDPs themselves. So um, the, the, the work of the project we're doing is not just, does not just help the people we're serving, but it also helps the, the people who serve. And finally, you see both sides of human nature starkly. You see the effects of huge violence and evil actions. And the good. And you also well. see the good, which outweighs for you. Yes, 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 it is. It is incredible. And it's incredible to see that um, you have Muslims and Christians getting together to try to see how better to help the people in their part of the world. And that, I think, is, is, is a big element of light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, people haven't become closing on themselves and only are interested in themselves. You have the roots of, of a future civil society, people who are interested in others and how can the community move forwards. That is present.